Richard Leonard, you're an Australian Jesuit and author of many books, including the bestseller, Where the Hell is God? Then Why Bother Praying? And your final book in the trilogy of questions, What Are We Doing on Earth for Christ's Sake? But you're here in Ireland and you've come back from the annual novena in Knock, where you were speaking about, among other things, the Pope and the Jubilee Year of Mercy. Tell me in brief what your thoughts are around this year as we draw toward the close. I think that uh, Pope Francis is utterly inspired. I really do believe he's been quite inspired. In a world that's hell-bent on revenge and retribution, he comes along and says what the world really needs is to concentrate on compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And I think at every level of our community, our family life, our country's life, Australia and Ireland, and uh, certainly our international community, uh, we've had enough revenge, we've had enough retribution, and to concentrate on compassion and mercy, I really do believe is an act of God. But in preparation for Knock, I went and read everything that, or I could lay my hands on anyway, all his homilies, all his documents, all the official teachings for the Year of Mercy that the Pope has, and he said a lot. And I came to the conclusion there were six big themes. The first was a bit of a surprise to me. He comes back again and again to the idea of obedience. But he has a very rich understanding of obedience. I think it's a very Jesuit, a very Ignatian sense of obedience because it's not one-way traffic. It's not saying, look, God calls us to be merciful, so now there's jump, now ask how high. He really has a very nuanced sense of this being um, a two-way street. It's a mutuality, and he brings it back to the origin of the word, that the word um, obedience comes from the Latin word audare, meaning to listen. The word audio comes from it too, to listen. And therefore that we really only buy in on a command or on a law if we really understood what's behind it, if we're listening to what's behind it. And, um, you know, I gave the example of Nock of my sister who was in a car accident and uh, as a result has been almost 28 years a quadriplegic. Well, I have no problem obeying, say, uh, the speed laws on a, on, on a highway or a freeway because I understand the consequences of what happens when you are in a car accident and what the absolute devastation that can be wrecked as a result. So that's the sort of thing I think he's talking about, that when we come to obey God's mercy and love and compassion, um, it, this is about listening, listening to the very heart of God, but also that our experience is listened to, that people are desperate to understand that God forgives them, that there's nothing that we've deserved to ever done to deserve this, but we're given this wonderful gift. The second thing that I think he comes back to again and again is joy. And he wrote a document called The Joy of the Gospel. And um, I said at Knock, and I want to say everywhere, that if you're a happy Catholic, I want you to tell your face about it sometime soon, that joy seems to be one of the things that we do lack. And that's because some of us are living tough lives. I, I get that. But this isn't about walking around with a supercilious smile on your face as though you don't have a care in the world. That's a pathology. That needs therapy. We're talking about we know where we've come from, why we're here, and where we're going. And that's got to put a bit of a spring in your step. So I think the fundamental joy of knowing that we're saved and loved and forgiven by God, um, although that's available to us, has to give you some joy in your life. And I think it's very important we recover that in Catholicism, in Christianity, because we can look a gloomy lot and uh, we're weighed down rather than set free by our own faith. I think and understanding that joy of the gospel, the Pope is clear on one thing that the joy and suffering are not mutually incompatible and that somebody can actually be 
under pressure, maybe suffering in a particular way, and yet through identification with the gospel and with Christ of the Gospels, find a joy in what they are going through. I'd have to say one of the saddest things for me is it's the only one of the very few major emotions that we don't find recorded in the Gospels, that Jesus never laughed, um, he never smiled, or we're not told. Now, obviously, he did because he was a full and true human being. But um, And James Martin, in his book Between Heaven and Mirth, makes this the very good point that many of the parables in their context would have been hilarious to people. But... Uh, it is true that suffering and joy are uh, really the flip side of the same um, human experience. And I know that some of the uh, people that are going through the toughest times, some of the poorest people I know can be some of the most joyful. And my own sister, she's got an extraordinary sense of humour and she has probably more right than most to be fairly bitter, but she's not bitter at all. She's wonderfully joyful. And she worked through her own suffering and her pain. And even in your own, I know from yourself and haven't spoken to you before, you yourself carry a good sense of humour about things about life and also maybe are deepened by what is carved out of it. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it does seem to be that suffering is one of the ways that something deeper is carved out of us. It gives us a sense of peace and tranquility. I think we also have, you know, that wonderful expression, black humour, and where in very dark moments people can find something quite funny. And I think it's a protective mechanism. I think it's one of the ways that we try to... Uh, we don't make light of the situation, but we cope within the situation. And one of the ways of a bit of solidarity is that we sometimes will be joyful with each other, even in the most bleak of circumstances. I think Number three? Number three is um, compassion for the poor. And the Pope is big on this. You know, he's really the apostle of the poor, as far as I can work out, for the whole world community. I have friends of mine who are atheist and agnostic, and they love everything the Pope has to say about the defence of the poor and making the world a more just place. So they wouldn't buy in on any of my belief or our belief in, you know, the call of the gospel and the Father, the Son and the Spirit. But they would absolutely believe that the Pope's stance of saying to the international community, you have grave obligations. But he keeps using the word compassion for or compassion with the poor, I discovered. And the word compassion comes from the Latin word compati and also has in there another Latin word panus, meaning bread. So compati means fellow feeling, um, because I don't think it's by accident that, thank God, we've stopped using the term charity Um I think the expression as cold as charity is right. It tends to be one way. It tends to say, well, let me throw some money at you because I'm wealthy or I'm powerful and you're not. Whereas compassion is a much, much more significant word of solidarity. What's it like to be uh, white in a black, a black in a white world? What's it like to be a woman in a man's world, to be gay in a straight world, to be disabled in an abled world, to be poor in a rich world, to be a settled, uh, uh, a refugee or asylum seeker in a settled world. That's what the Pope's coming back to, saying the first instance we have to have is this sense of identification, of solidarity, of trying to understand what what's it like to be on the other side of the dominant group. And I think the world needs to hear that. So, And then Parnas is in there because what we're called to with compassion is an intimacy. In the ancient world, you only ever ate with your intimates. You didn't eat with your enemies. Sharing meals was something. That's why Jesus' action of being with people on the fringe of his society is so scandalous, because he ate meals with them. That's lost on us now. Um, But it's true in the Gospels. 
And the Pope's getting us to recover that sense of a great sense of intimacy with people who are on the fringe of our society and bringing them in and coming with them, understanding, empowering them. The uh, third one, a fourth one, is uh, gratitude. Just being grateful that um, because God has been so good to us, we should be so grateful for everything that we've got. And he comes back to this theme of gratitude again and again and again. And for me, it's really come down to small things. Um, again, because of my sister's accident, but because of lots of other things. I'm just grateful for the smallest things in my life. And at Knock, I think I shocked them somewhat by saying as part of one of my presentations in the Basilica that, um, you know, we should even be grateful at the toilet. You know, being grateful you're for bowel and bladder. Like if it wasn't for my sister not having any control over her bowel and bladder, I wouldn't be that aware of it. I would take that utterly for granted. My God, I'm not, I'm absolutely grateful for it now. And I'm regularly praying uh, just a simple little prayer of gratitude. And I know that's pretty basic, but it's wonderfully basic. It says that our prayer life uh, of being grateful for things extends to every single moment of our life. So we, I think that's the sort of gratitude he seems to be talking about, that we, we don't take it as our right. We take it as our enormous blessing, the gifts that we have in our life. Yeah, there's a Jesuit in Ireland and um, he, when he's speaking and has spoken often about Ignatius of Loyola and then when he's finished he'll say, often will say, you know, when it all boils down to it, Ignatius' whole works can be summed up in one thing, gratitude. St Ignatius actually says in one of his letters, the greatest prayer that a creature can ever say to the creator is thank you. And I think that's right. And, uh, and of course, it's not by accident for we as Catholics anyway, because the word Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharistante, meaning to give thanks. So when we go to Mass, uh, it's all about being there to be grateful, even though we might be doing it pretty tough ourselves and going through some pretty difficult moments on the world stage. Irish people, Australian people are actually very blessed. I think also that notion... Uh, struck in the Gospels where it's the one time where Jesus says, where were the other nine, you know, that they didn't come back. Like he felt it, that they didn't say thank you. And also, in fairness, it's become a buzzword in in a global way in the whole mindfulness tradition, the New Age tradition. They really have called people back also to a sense of gratitude, the gratitude list. I was offered a gratitude app on my um, phone the other day. There's a, there's a campaign um, that don't let a day go by where you don't thank somebody that you're grateful for. I, I must admit, I, I love the fact that uh, the New Age movement and some of this mindfulness stuff, you know, it's like they've found it for the first time. This has been as old as probably all religions. Uh, certainly in the Jewish faith, one of the great things is to give praise and thanks to God in the Psalms. And of course, it becomes absolutely central to the Christian story too. So I must admit, I sometimes have a sneaking little smirk on my face where someone will give out on the radio or on the television as though they've discovered this and, you know, it seems to be brand new to them. And I think, oh but my we God. have lost it in fairness, like somebody like Edgar Tolley who brought back the power of now. Yes, that is there in ancient wisdom and in monasticism. But in fairness, we, we as an institutional church over the many centuries failed to take that and share it and concentrated much more on externals and practices and had lost that interior life. And in some ways they've called us back to it. I think it's a gift also from 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 the secular back to the religious to rediscover some of our founding wisdom. That's a good point, because um, sometimes what we've got to do is get language that speaks to that very culture at that time. So that's what they're recovering. 
the um, number five. Number five is um, forgiveness, and no surprise there. We're in a year of mercy, and that's where we're going to be as forgiving to others as God has been to us. And we say it in the Lord's Prayer: "Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us." And um, that forgiveness has to be rich and wonderful, but it's very difficult. I think of all the things we're called to in following Christ, uh, forgiveness is probably about among the most difficult because some we're not. Saint Augustine said in the fifth century, "Forgiveness is like a mother who has two lovely daughters called justice and compassion." And forgiveness doesn't say that bad words weren't said and bad actions weren't done. It actually holds people to account for what they said and what they did. But then it comes back and says, but I want to approach what was said. I want to approach what was done um, with utter compassion. And uh, that's a very difficult moment. That's a that's an extraordinary grace and gift to get. Um, I think with people, um, some people, it's very difficult to forgive them because they take no responsibility for what they've done and what they've said. And the second thing I, I, I always make a big point of is we've got to start with forgiving ourselves. You know, I've met people who just can't or won't forgive themselves and it absolutely wrecks them. Um, because so in this year of mercy, maybe one of the most surprising but wonderful outcomes would be that somebody would give themselves an even break. And God's forgiven us. I love the quote from Pope Francis. It's my favorite quote of the whole year. He said, there is nothing we have ever done for which God's mercy is not greater. And I think that's a stunning insight into the merciful heart of God. So I think that's an incredibly important and wonderful um, moment um, to be a forgiving person because it is of all the things in the new testament um, the two big sins from the lord's own lips are hypocrisy is number one that's the one he goes to all the time and then those who won't forgive is the second most common uh, um, sin that he attacks so if we're following him we're meant to be forgiving people it's amazing how that statement by the pope and it is an amazing statement because at the end of the day we'll all be saved is a big question in church theology. Is, will anybody go to hell? And that statement, simple though it is, profound as it is, is really a profound theological statement as well. It, it. I think the. I think actually theologically, you can you can see a traditional Catholic theology though, by saying, well, maybe if people have consistently, freely, and truly rejected God all their lives, then that God respects that they could consistently, truly, and reject God for all eternity. But that would be their choice. That would be their choice. It is another moment. But look, the gratuitous love and mercy of God is available to them. So we've always been big on that God would condemn you. Well, maybe the condemnation comes all right, but it's something that comes as an utterly consistent manifestation of all the choices that you've made. But if you say, if you take that statement and you say, you meet your maker and you say, I have lived a horrendous life, I consistently chose, I see you now, I ask for your mercy. We always, even traditional Catholic theology says then that would be freely available because a repentant sinner is uh, one of which is never beyond the scope of God's mercy. And that's the scandal of, I think, the Christian understanding of mercy because the two daughters that Augustine talks about, the, the Bible also says mercy triumphs over justice. That's hard for people. It, it is really hard. So it calls for, and I think what the Pope is doing, is calling for people to come from another place. He's calling you to another place. And um, I think manifest also in his recent comments on the death penalty, where he has gone not just 
but nearly as far as saying it is intrinsically evil. I'm, I'm struck by how he talks generally about sin. He tends to use the concept of destructiveness. And uh, I think that's a much more helpful way into the discussion with contemporary people. Because uh, while simple behaviour is sinful behaviour, we're not running away from that, the language itself can become blocks and people have just closed down thinking about it because it's been used in a, a pretty dreadful way. And I think you're right. He's calling us back to um, the gratuitous mercy of God. That doesn't mean God doesn't hold people to account for what they've done. But it does mean that God knows everything of their heart, of their mind. God knows the full history of why they've been so manifestly cruel and evil. And so God's in the best position to make those judgments. And what we're called to do, I think, is to be as generous as we possibly can in participating in such an extraordinary, gratuitous gift. The other thing that strikes me is forgiveness is a gift, as you said. It's a grace. And then it's something that we, it's a gift back to ourselves as well, because we're not bound up with the other person. Because when you can't forgive, you're carrying that person around with you. And that there is a distinction between being reconciled and forgiven because there are some people who are not good to be around. If they're still continuing the same abusive behaviour, you may forgive them, but you don't have to be around them and reconciled to them. Forgiveness doesn't say that I have to accept um, everything you've done and said and I have to agree with it. In, in fact, some people have to make decisions to be to separate themselves from toxic relationships, as they call them these days. And that's just sensible because there are other virtues that come in. Um, the virtue of prudence kicks in here. Now, that's a very old-fashioned word but I think what lies behind the virtue of prudence in the Christian life is knowing the very best decision that I can take in the circumstance which is going to be the most life-giving and for some people while we work on forgiving them and we might even need the grace to want to forgive them you know St Ignatius is big on that we might also take the decision that as you rightly say the behavior is still pretty manifest and your destructive behavior destructive language is so pretty awful that I've got to really limit the damage here and that's a prudent decision so all of the virtues of the Christian life, they operate together. They don't operate in isolation from one another. Number six, last but not least. The last one, of course, is love. And, uh, of course, this is at the heart of Jesus' message, love of God, love of neighbour, love of self. And, um, you know, sometimes some traditional Catholics will be very upset that young people don't know the Ten Commandments. And they get very worked up. And, uh, and, and Jesus was offered the Ten Commandments and he turned them into the three laws of love. And uh, so while I think it would be good to know the Ten Commandments, I've got nothing against them. I am more interested in the fact that the Lord himself saw fit to focus more on the positive and uh, that the action of love is, in fact, the way to follow him and, of course, is the pattern of his own life. Um, love of God, clearly we need to do better on that all the time, but uh, I think a lot of good people do love God and they know that God loves them and it's liberating when you know it. Secondly, um, love of neighbour, well, we just have to keep improving on that because it's just it's inescapable in following Christ. But the third one, I think, needs a lot of work. Love of self. We've got horribly confused between love of self and adoration of self. And what I grew up believing was a vanity or you shouldn't love yourself or your ego was out of control or it was inappropriate. Um, I think what we were trying to say was um, adoration of self is uh, inappropriate, it's egotistical, it's, it's um, pride um, uh, gone overboard. But that Jesus doesn't say adore yourself, he said love yourself. And I always think of parents, I know parents who would sacrifice everything for their children, 
not because they don't have regard for themselves, but because they love themselves and their children so much that they would make enormous sacrifices. So love of self can be manifested in sacrificial love as well. And it's that sort of love that I think Jesus is talking about. And that's what we're called to do. And in this year of mercy, um, you know, the whole thing is all, all about the manifestation of God's love. And that was one of Ignatius's big insights into the spiritual life. And, of course, the present pope is, is strongly in that Ignatian tradition that I'm, I am a sinner, but I'm a loved sinner. And once you, when you know you're a sinner, well, you can get trapped there. You can easily get caught there and think there's no way out. But once you, Ignatius's big insight was once you introduce the concept that actually God loves me, even though I am a sinner, then all of a sudden there's a way forward. There is the way, the truth and the life out of um, our destructive behavior and the circle of destruction that keeps us there. So it's holding those three in common, love of God, love of neighbor and love of self. And of course, to finally say it is a jubilee year and jubilee has its own significance in the biblical tradition. And it's a beautiful significance. In the Old Testament, the jubilee year is very significant because it happened once every 50 years. And the reason it was every 50 years is because most people in uh, the Old Testament times and certainly in Jesus' day were dead by 50 And we know that for a whole lot of testing on sarcophagi and records and other things we've got. So when, for instance, the Bible talks about someone getting to the great and wise age of three score and ten, seventy, well, no one got there or next to no one got there. So uh, it was a great blessing to get to 70. But people were dead by 50 and they did three things every lifetime. Once in a lifetime, three things happened. They set the slaves free, they forgave the debts, and they let the crops go fallow. And it's this concept of the year of Jubilee that I think we're in. in this is an extraordinary year of Jubilee. So it's, it's, uh, it's not within the 50-year framework. But the Pope just knows the world needs to hear this right now. So it'll be great to think that the end of this extraordinary year of, uh, of the Jubilee of Mercy, we would in part or in full be set free, that we would be participating in forgiving others' debts and maybe the debts that we carry about ourselves and finally he's written about this separately but that if we our mercy doesn't con, uh, doesn't extend to creation to the environment then what planet are we handing on what planet do we live in right now that god is manifest in and through creation so we've got to also be merciful compassionate kind loving towards the very creation that god has given to us to enjoy so i think that um, freedom forgiveness and care of creation are three wonderful themes we're seeing so manifest in what is just an inspired and wonderful year <laughs> 